dear listeners. Thank you for downloading, streaming, listening to the Spooky Doings podcast. My name is Rick Cousin. I'm an improv comedian from New York, and I am joined today, as per usual, by the lady behind the beeps, the boots, the buttons, and the bobs. She's divinity in all forms. She's Chelsea Bennington. How are you, Chelsea? I'm good. I'm happy. I'm happy it's Friday. So that's honestly what's been keeping me going this week. It's been a long week, but not a bad one. Me too. Uh, for for our listeners, I finally got some work. In fact, I Hell got yeah. more than one job going, which is pure brick luck. Uh, my friends at uh, my local comic book store, knowing I hadn't worked throughout the pandemic, offered me some part-time work. And I said, thanks. And when you know it, right after that, that's when the union hall calls and uh, offers me jobs. So basically, I went from doing sweet fuck all of watching movies for two years. To all to the things. Being- being up and running and bouncing it's very jarring but i'm i'm recovering uh quite nicely i think how is it it like to uh be back working for the man essentially well it's frustrating the production i was on and released from yesterday still hasn't given me my start work which is the paperwork that i need to get paid so i need to harass people about that but yesterday i made prop heroin out of pretzels and chocolate chip cookies. Prop heroin? <laughs> yes, we needed brown powder. So uh, the the woman I was working with grabbed pretzels and chocolate chip cookies. I grabbed a Ziploc bag and my box cutter, and I just spent time crushing it, crushing it until it was a fine powder for camera. And then I thought to myself, that's probably some pretty delicious heroin. Yeah, heroin has never sounded so good. Yeah, like if you put it in a milkshake or some hot chocolate, I would drink that. I mean, isn't that how heroin is usually ingested? Is milk yes, mixed and, yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You mix it up with some hot chocolate and, and, you know, depending on your thing, maybe you're a whipped cream person, maybe you're a marshmallow person, just get it in there. Just get it in there and chase that, that delicious dragon. Oh, I'm excited. I'm going to try <laughs> heroin. <laughs> Don't snitch on yourself on a podcast. <laughs> but we are joined today by somebody else who knows about set life production work and things like that uh we have jolie richardson um, and i really should have asked you ahead of time uh how you wanted to be introduced but we just got into things <laughs> so. that's totally fine people call me jolene richardson or jolene marie um as like a lot of my social media is so either side <laughs> great <laughs> thank you very much for joining us how are you doing today i'm doing well yeah pandemic? Thanks. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to talk to you guys today. I, I am also excited because I first learned about you after reading your brilliant article about Vera West in Fangoria. Um, so uh, before we get into that, you are a costume designer in the business. So how did that come to be of interest to you and something that you'd want to pursue rather uh, as a career? Yeah, so I, um, I've i always kind of worked in the business. I started out working in theater when I was really young. Um, always have had my hands in live entertainment in some fashion. And then I started making clothes in college and fell in love with making clothing. Didn't really know too much about design. Like, obviously, I knew that it was a thing. And then my senior year of college, I did some design work. And then when it when I went away to grad school, I, I studied design. And I was like, okay, cool. Like, this is fun. And then I always felt like theater was one part of me and then horror was another part because I'd always been a horror fan, but I'd never had friends who were horror fans growing up. It was just me and my dad that would watch horror movies um, until about like college. And then I started meeting people who actually watched horror movies. Um, yeah. And so I was like, oh, wait, like I can, I could do this for film and I could do this in horror. And then, yeah, so it kind of just blended together there. But a lot of it had to do with pandemic too of I was working off Broadway and my show got closed and because of COVID and I had no work for, you know, 18 months. And I was like, I need something to do. And um, Justin and the guys at Not the Funeral Home kind of just fell on my radar. And yeah, that's how I started working with The Last Drive-In and met, and then it just kind of snowballed from there. (laughs) it's, It's very funny how one thing will just lead to another thing and then suddenly you're very happy and, and yeah. especially if you get to work in something that's creatively fulfilling you know sometimes 
uh, you're making prop heroin uh, yesterday <laughs> at one point. Uh, and again, since I didn't do my start work, I'm not breaking any non-disclosure agreements that I haven't signed yet. Um, I looked to my right at a site at a set that's a plane crash site. And there's a young boy uh, in tattered clothes covered in blood. And I just start laughing because like, I, I, I love my job. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I feel the same exact way. And I still do some theater. I'll do a musical or a play about once a year as a designer. And I always get the Christmas musicals too, which is so ironic to me that I'm always just like working in blood and guts. And then everybody's like, okay, you want to just design a Christmas musical? And I'm like, okay. But yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll design in any fashion. <laughs> for me, Christmas is a different kind of horror. But that's, that's another story for another yeah. time. <laughs> so in reading this article about Vera Chase. It, it was very compelling to me because showbiz, and we're hearing a lot about it now in, in really uh, revealing ways, or at least maybe just I am by sheer coincidence. Um, we know how shitty men can be. <laughs> and really? Vera was, was a, yeah, yeah. Oh. go figure, was a <laughs> costume designer that got no credit. So how did she first uh, pop up on your radar and what compelled you to write about her story to inform uh, the community through the, the, the platform of Fangoria about this, this heroine, not the kind that I was making, but <laughs> this heroine of the genre. We're gonna get that, flagged by Apple. You need to stop <laughs> saying that. <laughs> they need to send me my start work. I will. I, I'm looking to piss somebody off today. <laughs> so, I, way to throw me off my train of thought. <laughs> Sorry. So, so, what compelled you to tell Vera's story to the masses? And we didn't hear about her for so long. Yeah. I, so, I grew, obviously, I grew up watching classic Universal monsters. I love Universal Studios. Like, I lived in Orlando for a little bit. I love Universal Studios. And Creature from the Black Lagoon, Bride of Frankenstein, like these were staple movies for my life growing up. And, you know, and they roll the credits for these movies and you don't see too many roles being accounted for behind the scenes back then because one, they just didn't have the, the same amount of um, crew that you have today because some of the jobs just didn't exist or people were under these studio contracts and they did like three or four different jobs that now, you know, you have a whole team doing. Um, and I think, I don't remember which movie it was, but there was one where it just said gowns by Vera West. And as a costume designer, now, like in my most recent years, I've started looking people up when I watch movies, because if I like what I see on the screen, I want to, you know, research the person and um, make sure that they get the credit that they deserve because you find that costume designers and the, I'm gonna be like a broken record about this because I feel like I talk about this all the time, but costume designers don't get recognized. It's, it, especially, specifically in horror, I will say that it's SFX or it's, you know, writing, directing and all those other jobs. And all of those jobs are amazing and they take a lot of work and they're uh, incredible skill sets. But so often it's 50-50 costume and SFX makeup. Um, so I what I was originally trying to do was just trying to bring costume designers names into the forefront. So I, I came across Vera and it just said gowns by, and I was like this really, she only did the gowns. Like, okay. So I, I looked her up and then it was like, no, she was the head of universal costuming department from 1927 to 1947. And yes, she did the gowns, but she also did like, she worked with Jack Pierce. She was the one like creating all these looks and, delegating who was wearing what and so women would come in and they would dress the women and men would come in and dress the men but she was the one ultimately making the final decision and I was like why don't people know about her so yeah <laughs> that that's a very fair question to be somebody uh part of the golden age of horror films the ones that paved the road for everything that we love now we know the names of actors, the names of directors, uh, and all of these legendary people, but to bring a name, especially of a woman, out of the shadows and into the forefront, like, hey, no, th this person needs as much 
recognition as James Whale because uh, the bride probably wouldn't have looked this good without Hirawath. Yeah, and um, you know, this was, I read Mallory O'Mara's book and I was blown away by her research and everything. And 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 that and that kind of stuck in my mind too, where it's like, okay, I, I feel I have a, a duty as a, a woman in the business to uphold these women's names that have been forgotten about. And this was, you know, like 15 to 20 years before Millicent Patrick worked on Creature. Creature was 52 and she stopped working for Universal at 47. So she was doing these movies like 20 years before Millicent was doing them. And I was like, why don't we know about her? And we only know about costume design because of Edith Head. And, you know, she was the one who was really brassy and, and I applaud her for that because it probably wasn't easy to be like, hey, this is a career and you need to have a category in the Oscars about us because we do a lot of work. So um, yeah, so I feel bad for everybody who came before Edith that got felt that fell through the cracks. And I'm sure that there are others, but yeah. So definitely back in those universal days everybody that was on camera unless they were specifically playing somebody poor i mean even that you have to take into design the the costume but everybody with a lot of aristocracy they're all dressed to the nines and then you come to a more modern age where there's a lot of street clothes but there's still a lot of decisions and uh, approval that has to go with that. In your experience as a costume designer, have you ever noticed either with a principal actor or with background that sometimes you just put the right article of clothing on somebody and that just brings out a character that may not be on the page, it just gives them something to work with? Oh, 100%. I mean, a lot of my work is working with actors to, um, I mean, it's collaborative art form. So I always, uh, kind of how I break it down for people who are not costume designers is like, think of your own closet, you know, and the clothes that you wear every day. And unconsciously you're making choices for yourself that are completely informed by the type of movies that you wear, the type of books that you read, the music that you listen to, maybe the weather that's going on that day or your mood for the day. So I have to take all of that for a character and bring that into who that character is because the clothing is that skin of who that character is. So, you know, you have conversations with the actor and they have one view of who the character is from their perspective. And then I'll have a different perspective and the director will have a different perspective. So we all get together and we sort of work out who this, who this character is. And, and when you get those pieces that um, the actor feels comfortable in, that look great on screen, that really speak to who this person is, it, it clicks and it comes together and it becomes this magic that's so wonderful. Yeah, there have been a couple of times I did some background work for uh, periods that took place, you know, prior to the present. And, you know, it was always nice to see the wardrobe people have so much fun with me. Like, nah, let's get that other jacket that we had in the back and they'll put it on me. And even just for me, I'm putting it on. I'm like, all right, now I know I'm just supposed to sit here and look sweaty. But in my head, I'm creating a backstory for myself. Why? Because what else am I going to do sitting around and waiting? Yeah, well, I mean, clothing does inform us exactly. And, and it could inform you as the actor of, you know, if something's weighted a certain way or something feels kind of off, it informs your walk, you know, maybe your speech pattern. It, it like inspires you to talk, to speak a certain way. It you know, makes you sit a certain way because you can't really sit the way that you would normally sit in your own clothing. Um, yeah, so clothing does everything. So I always tell people it's not just shopping, even if it's a modern show, it's not a period piece. It is so much more than just shopping, so. Now, speaking about being a horror fan, trying to getting into this line of work, are there any specific costumes throughout the genre, any particular looks? that uh, are among your favorites? I always talk about, um, one of my newer favorites is Midsommar, yes. Ari Aster's 2019 film. Um, I mean, Andrea Fletch just went above and beyond for that film with what she created because she created this world of the Americans and they're very 
plain and they're very, um, they're softer fabrics, but they also have a texture to them that's so different from the haggard. And the haggard is just so bright and sterile and the embroidery, I mean, the research that she put into that, that movie was just incredible. So that one is, it's definitely one of my favorite newer horror movies. Um, older horror movies, I, I mean, I love, you know, I love The Exorcist. I love analyzing sleepwear and horror. I did a piece on Fangoria online about sleepwear oh, and horror. interesting. On sleepwear and horror? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, because there's a lot of symbolism about sleepwear and like the clothing that we wear to go to sleep when we're feeling the most vulnerable. Um, and I love the the floral motifs that are used in sleepwear a lot of the time. So if you look at Reagan's nightgown in The Exorcist, like she's got all these little flowers, but they're you know, on her nightgown, but it's it's so innocent and yet she's being taken over by this horrible force within her. So it's this contrasting of, you know, innocence and the loss of innocence, which is so lovely. Did, did you find like I did once you got into this business that now you're going back and rewatching familiar movies, but now through a different lens, paying closer attention to the wardrobe because I'll pay closer attention to the set dressing and go, somebody approved of that. Yeah. I don't know why I plants there. <laughs> oh, constantly, constantly. Even when I was studying in grad school, um, before I started, you know, when I was still working in theater, just you watch movies, you watch things from a different lens when you're in this business. I, you know, I say, I have so many friends who do so many different things. So like I have circus performer friends and I'm like, do you watch like people doing acrobatics and like look at things differently and they're like oh yeah constantly so I think it's just yeah when you're in your field and you start watching things through that lens you can't unsee things <laughs> oh it makes Rick insufferable sometimes yeah. watching <laughs> with him <laughs> I'm like will you shut up and let me enjoy <laughs> <laughs> I did have uh one question for you while Rick deals with what I just said <laughs> but, um... I am 100% guilty of what you just said. <laughs> you, know, you know it and you won't change and we're okay with that. Um, one thing I noticed in your article that I'd love to get your opinion or further opinion yeah. on is um, you pointed out that some would argue that uh, one of the reasons that she wasn't um, noticed or recognized is, be is people were arguing that she doesn't have a style like a certain or oh. signature, sorry, style is probably not the yeah. right word. Um, and you made a great point about the femininity in, in her in her costumes. I was just wondering if, if you could expand on that a little bit on what her signature was. Yeah, so I, I like to think that her signature was, um, I mean, she was great at using white in black and white films because using color in black and white films, first of all, is really hard. I mean, we as, you know, modern designers don't have to think about color theory as much when we, or color gradient theory. We still think about color theory, but not color gradient because our film is in color. Um, but she really understood the female form in a time where hyper femininity was uh, very much praised and looked to right before the war. And then, so, and she was also doing it in a wartime when women lost hyperfemininity because women now started to go into the workforce and the silhouette changed to be more masculine, to be more acceptable, quote unquote, for working women. Um, so she understood how to drape clothing on women, how to use tools and whites and nightgowns and wedding dresses to create these like very fragile delicate female victims that were also powerful in their own right like um Zita Johannesson is an oxenomen like she's in this very vulnerable garment that is very you know she's scantily clad at the end of the movie she's got the tool draped skirt um her midriff is showing which was like you know in a pre you know in a coded film era was like a little scandalous too um and yet she there is like a there's a strength to her garment so in framing the female form she found the strength as well as the delicate nature of it to create that oh she's a victim but not really she's gonna right. 
triumph. Yeah. Yeah. Something that I didn't realize. And I, I mean, why would I, because I'm learning more and more about her after reading your article and doing my own research is that she did that, um, gown that I love so much on Ava Gardner yes. <laughs> in the colors. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, that's a signature right there. So it's, it's upsetting. I mean, all of this is upsetting, but it's upsetting when uh, it's even fathomed that people would argue, oh, well, she didn't have a signature. Like, yeah. What? And I think people, I think that argument is made because people just didn't know her. So right. somebody like Edith Head or even modernly like Colleen Atwood, who's very much in this, in the sphere of filmmakers of like, she has a signature because she works with Tim Burton and therefore like everything has like, you know, a certain look to it or, you know, somebody like Edith Head where she worked with Alfred Hitchcock very frequently. So that look is very um, specific as well. But because she was working under a studio contract and worked with so many different directors, there wasn't a lot of time, quote unquote, to like develop a voice, but there was because she was working with these women in these noirs and these horror films and she knew her way around gowns. She knew her way around the female form and how to dress women. Yeah. Is there any particular uh, style or type of character that you like to uh, decide what they're going to wear? Or do you just prefer someone when a character on a page may just be a blank canvas, you just have a personal look at and then you're like, all right, let's see. Let's have at it. In my own designs, you mean? Yes. Um, hmm. I mean, no character is really a blank canvas hmm. um, because they are they are complex human beings. Even if there are no descriptions in the script about what they're wearing, um, just by reading their story and listening to their and, and hearing their dialogue in my head, I'm already forming opinions about them, right? And so when I when I try to design, I love to kind of culminate all of like what I'm grabbing from the script and then go back to the director and say okay this is what I've got what do you got and then we have that conversation and then once that conversation is complete then I take it to the actor and I say okay so like this is what I'm feeling how are you feeling about this like I'm picturing this because x y and z you know and like creating that conversation so it's all about creating conversations and you know, I already have a bias, obviously, in, in my head because of where I've grown up and things that I, you know, listen to, watch and all this stuff. So I'm already pulling from those and then, you know, using the other information that's in the script or with the director, or with the actor to inform the finalized choice. I love that answer because it makes it sound like uh, costume design on film and TV. It's kind of like a gumbo in a way with all the flavors mm-hmm. coming together and melding for somebody that is is visually uh, delicious. Um, you mentioned earlier that you're part of the costume design of The Last Drive-In. What's involved with that? Yeah, so that's, that's a bit, um, that's very different from everything else that I do because it's such a unique show. Um, so a lot of it is, because Joe Bob has his signature look, um, he comes in with like 30 to 40 different shirts and bolos. And Austin, the director and myself will come together and we will create looks um, based on episodes, based on movies. I like to come in and pair bolos and shirts with, um, sometimes I'll, I'll go off the movie poster if I haven't seen the movie, because sometimes we do really obscure movies and I don't have time to like watch all these movies before we this get to set. True. Yeah. And sometimes you can't find the obscure movies sometimes, until they put them on the show. <laughs> yeah, they're, Sometimes they're not available no. until, until he's showing them. Yeah. So I have like posters and, and images to go off of. So I like to kind of visually match the poster if I can. Um, and then, yeah, and then the, his bolos and his wingtips and everything will kind of match from there color-wise. Um, for all of the extraneous stuff that we do, music videos, sketches, like that kind of stuff, that's where I really get to play. So Austin will come with to me with an idea and say, hey, I'm thinking about why don't we do this? And then I'll be like, okay, cool. Let me make that. And, I, and then I'll come to him and say, hey, I found this in my research. Do we want to add this as an element? And he'll yay or nay it. And it's, it's a really great collaboration. It's a really small collaboration because it's just the two of us, but um, 
it it always works out and it's a lot of fun. <laughs> it, it is always a fun look. Speaking of fun looks, are you involved uh, with Darcy the Male Girls costumes towards the end of uh, a particular segment? And how um, close of a collaboration do you take part in with her? So sometimes some of her stuff she does handle a lot of her own cosplays because she cosplays a lot so she just has like a backlog of costumes that she'll bring in um and I'll make tweaks to them if she needs help with tweaks um but a lot of that stuff she she does do on her own and she takes care of on her own yeah because it seems like a fun show are you present when they broadcast live I know during COVID some things were clearly yeah. pre-recorded for safety concerns but yeah. for the ones that are live broadcast are you present and I don't know if somebody pops a stitch or something are you gonna oh yeah oh yeah I'm always you know often off behind camera you know like if somebody needs a safety pin if somebody needs a piece of gaff tape we tape a lot of stuff too because pretty is done that is my theory that's the theater theory too that done is pretty so <laughs> as long as the camera doesn't catch it um yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm always standing by. I have my little um, my little apron with my safety pins and stuff. <laughs> now, another thing that uh, I, I've noticed uh, in some of your recent posts, you did a virtual Zoom presentation uh, with the Huntington Cinema Arts Center. Yes. Uh, which is a spot that, you know, I, I, I love to have an excuse to go there. And I'm very curious to see what happens when they reopen and display all their renovations. So what can you tell us about uh, that and what you cooked up for them? Figuring yeah, them, of course. So I love the Cinema Arts Center there. Um, I mean, I'm a Long Island girl. So there, I live in New York City, but I'm a Long Island girl. So I've been going to them for, uh, for as long as I can remember for special events and stuff. So um, when I started developing my lecture series with them. I reached out to Kat Kim, who is um, one of their, uh, like she, she creates the programming and, and stuff. She's my point of contact there. Um, yeah, and so I'll just come up with an idea and I'll say, hey, I'm thinking about, you know, talking about this. Is this something that you guys are interested in? And um, they've been really receptive to all of my lectures. So I've done four with them now. And it's been a lot of fun. And I don't just do horror with them. Like I did a costumes of Wes Anderson lecture. I did an Audrey and Givenchy lecture and about their relationship because she was his muse. Um, I've done the, the monsters one and then I've done the blondes of Hitchcock. So they've been a lot of fun and I, I love researching. I love teaching. So uh, being able to do that, especially for such a wonderful theater. So I'm so excited when their renovations are done to like get back in person and, and work with them some more. Were all of those over Zoom or were any of them pre-pandemic in person? No, so they were all over Zoom. Yeah. Okay. How were they received? Really well, actually. Um, the Wes Anderson one had some of the highest attendance. Uh, we had like 46 people. I think the Hitchcock one as well had like between 35 and 40 people um, involved, so, uh, like guests coming in to, to see it. So it was really great. And I, I learned too from the people who come and watch because you have the, the members, the season pass holders um, that are huge cinephiles and, you know, older than I am. So they've, they've really studied film and they love film. So we'll have conversations afterwards and they'll ask me questions. And, and sometimes if I don't have the answers, they'll, they'll have the answers for other guests that have questions. So we have these great conversations all together and it's, it's really lovely. Yeah. That, that is one of the fun things about uh, Q&As for something that's already been out in the world is that some there, there's somebody there that's way more knowledgeable than anyone oh, that's yeah. up front on a stage. Perhaps it's like, all right, take this one. Yeah. Yeah. Like um, during my monster lecture, I didn't know that so they would film the English speaking versions of all of the universal monster movies during the day. And then at night, the Spanish cast and crew would come in and use the same sets, different costumes, um, but the same sets and film the Spanish versions of all of the classic universal monster movies, which I had no idea about it. And I don't know how I didn't stumble across it in my research, but so now I have a whole nother rabbit hole to go down, which is excellent. <laughs> I knew that about Dracula. I didn't know that about the other films. Yeah. Yeah. They did bring it up in reference to Dracula, but I think they were also mentioning that uh, they had done this for a few other classic universal films. What, what, what I liked when I heard about it in, in regards to Dracula 
in that watching what was filmed in the daytime and the director and the actor, actors just thinking, we can top that. And, you know, and being the son of a Cuban immigrant, I'm like, yep, that, that checks. Latin, <laughs> Latin spike can be a great motivator, especially where creativity is involved. It's like, all right, you, you think you got something? We're going to, we're going to top it for you. Absolutely. Yeah. But you are also a podcaster. You host I a am. called To Die For, Die mm-hmm. spelled D-Y-E. Yeah. Um, how did that come about? What does that entail? Yeah, that came about um, also over the pandemic. So, I mean, I was just looking for things to do and looking to kind of get my writing and stuff out there. So I started a blog at first called Hanging by a Thread. And I love a good sewing pun. Let's see what you did there. (laughs) So um, I I do a lot of like sewing puns in my posts and not in our podcast. So um, I found Emma Kogan, my co-host, through, I think, just Googling, just sending my email out places and finding Monstrous Femme, which is the film uh, group. Well, not really group. It's the the, the production company she's a part of um, with her best friend, Hannah. And they do incredible shorts. So please check out their work as well. They, they've ju- they're wrapping up Baby Fever, which is their most recent short now. And the stills look incredible. So I'm super excited for the world to see this short. So um, Emma and I started emailing and we started talking on Zoom and we noticed that we had a lot of similar interests. She put together this horror, women in horror round table about costuming. Um, I brought my best friend in on that, Jen, who is also a costume designer who lives in Virginia. Um, and so the us, Mina Lee, who is a, a YouTuber, she's a fashion historian on YouTube, and Emily Gagne, who is a writer for, um, she does the Final Girl um, column. It's called Final Girl Fashion. It's a column that she has online, which is incredible. And um, so the five of us got together and we started, you know, just having this round table. And then after, Emma and I still stayed in contact and we were just kind of like, I want to do more with this. Like, this was a lot of fun. So we came up with the podcast and, and it's so funny because it took us forever to figure out a name. We were like, it's going to come to us at the last possible second. And I don't know how we got to, to die for, but I think we definitely based it off of the pun and the idea that people are always like, you know, saying, oh, this is to die for, or this is to die for. So we were like, we have to, it's horror. It's a pun. It's yeah. <laughs> During during this pandemic, it was really important to have some kind of creative outlet uh, for yeah. Chelsea and myself not being able to perform improv. Uh, I'm not going to speak for Chelsea, but for me, it really sucked. And if I didn't have this podcast to talk with one of my best friends, even if we're just shooting the shit and trying to crack each other up, I would have gone crazier than I did. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and that was a lot of the reason why we started the podcast was because Emma and I do get along so well. We've actually never met in person because she lives in Portland and I live in New York, but we were just on the same page about everything. And we had a similar vision of getting the names of designers for these horror films out there and really teaching people about the process of design and what we do. Um, And we're starting to see a lot more conversation come up around costume design, which is really great. And like, this year, the Fangoria Chainsaw Awards is the inaugural year that they're doing a costume design category. Like the conversations are happening. So it's really awesome. That's so now, exciting. I, oh, go ahead, Rick. But does she live in Portland, Oregon or Portland, Maine? Portland, Oregon. Yeah. Okay. So she's on the West Coast. Are there I'm plans? Kind of or- Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm saying, are there plans for you to actually meet in person as things yes. get a little bit safer? Yeah, yeah. So I think Emma has some plans. She's hoping to get to New York this summer um, to do some filming and to be here for a few months. So um, we've got some plans in place to hopefully do some in-person stuff together. <laughs> I was about to say that that first episode in person, that, that's a keeper. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I interrupted you, Chelsea. Right. No, it's it's okay. I was just, I, I've been, my brain is now like spinning with uh, thinking about uh <laughs> costume design and fashion and horror because like one of my favorites and I know well more of a recent favorite and I know it's quite a polarizing choice but I thought it did a great job with like having the blood and gore and um the sparkly beautiful 
but also incredibly toxic fashion world was neon demon Mm. and um I'm trying to think like because I love there's so many movies I love that are specifically period pieces and historical fiction I watch a lot of that mostly because of the costume design um and the set pieces and everything about it you know Anna Karenina is one of my favorites the Karen Knightley one I don't even know if I ever pay attention to the story (laughs) I think I'm usually just paying attention to to uh the style but Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like in, you know, the horror realm, we're focusing a lot on the special effects and the gore and the, and what's going on there and not as, not always on the specific costumes. Um, I could be wrong. At least that's what I think. And it's probably changing quite a bit, but yeah, my mind, yeah. I was just saying my mind is like spinning, thinking about the examples. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I, I always too, like, everybody cosplays now, right? When you go to a con every year for Halloween, everybody picks their favorite slasher, their favorite final girl to, to be. And nobody really knows who designs these costumes. So we were like, this isn't fair that, and also, I mean, not to get too preachy, but like, there's a, there's a, a visible pay gap between costume designers and other people in other departments, because a lot of that has to do with the fact that it's mostly women doing this work and there's no, um, legal right to your own designs as Halloween costumes. So you don't always get residuals. You don't always get the money you deserve from these things. And yet how many places do you see Ghostface every Halloween? How many places do you see Freddy's sweater? So, you know, these people are being left out of a whole, whole like category of people are being left out of a conversation that I, I just don't think it's fair. I no, completely agree. And I, I hate hearing that the, that the pay gap is there, but yeah, because it's not even just the, the, you know, costumes from like historic pieces or even, you know, neon demon, like I mentioned, which is focused on models, but one, uh, one person who I follow on social media, I saw at a con, um, probably in the past year or so, she was dressed as uh, Sydney Prescott in the first mm-hmm. screen, which was just, she was bloodied up, but she had on that blue jean jacket, that purple shirt and like jeans or leggings, whatever uh, Nev Campbell was wearing. And something like that is, it looks like it would be so simple, but it's iconic and people recognize who it is. So um, it, it, yeah, interesting uh point there too i'm glad you mentioned the pay gap is costume designing does that have its own union sorry i'm trying to (laughs) mute my dog's barking (laughs) the the dog is an essential part of the show my cat often infiltrates it's totally fine (laughs) hey sorry i'm so sorry no that's okay the dog also feels very strongly about the wage gap (laughs) i get that that's the right reaction to have bark with furious anger it's like i've been waiting for someone to ask all day (laughs) (laughs) yeah so there's um there's two unions um there well there's multiple unions but there is the costume designers guild and then there's local 829 which is the designers union and scenic artists union out here on the east coast um and so the 829 is part of iatsi i believe the guild is also a level of iatsi but they are their own guild and their own thing and then you have you know the IATSE motion picture costumers you have um, the dressers and wardrobe union um, that dress off Broadway and do Broadway shows so we have our own unions um, and if you're curious about more information you could go to IATSE's pages especially the IA costuming Instagram and they have all of the statistics up there about the pay gap um, like they have all of the wage breakdowns if you're interested and just like the ridiculousness of, you know, a local one stage hand doing the same amount of shows and the same amount of work as a dresser and then getting like 15,000 more a year. It's absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> Cause oh you know, I'm, I'm not one to complain when I get uh, paid a, a, a good amount of money for something that's stupid or sometimes just standing around for a bit. I appreciate that, but I do believe in, in equal pay for equal per work. There are things of equal importance, and I realize uh, 
some people on something, be it a name person that's uh, directing or someone that's in front of the camera are going to get paid more. That part makes sense. But the people behind the scenes, you're giving up a lot of time. You're giving up mm -hmm. a lot of hours. Oh, and yeah. You shouldn't be doing it for something that's got such a huge discrepancy just because of gender or what a lot of the aging cigar chompers who hopefully retired during this pandemic would designate as uh, woman's work. Because, um, you know, let's face it, Teamsters, sometimes you got to load wardrobe into a truck oh, to yeah. drive someplace else. So if there weren't costume designers, regardless of gender doing that, mm -hmm. you wouldn't be making your big money either. Right. I mean, I I'm, I'm 5'4". I'm not a big person. And I have had to you know, lift large boxes. I have to, you know, these giant gowns on these hangers weigh like 30 to 20 pounds each. And sometimes I have to, you know, lift them up over my head so that they don't drag on the floor. And, you know, that costume is, you know, almost as weighs as much as me when you put three or four of them, you know, in my hand to take them someplace. And, you know, I've, I've had people tell me that the reason why I wasn't getting paid enough was because I wasn't working with power tools. And I'm like, how could you, how can you tell me that? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it's like, you know, people don't want to say it's a gender issue, but it is a gender issue because you're not seeing this in other departments. Like you're seeing it in costuming and dressing and wig making and hair and makeup fields. So yeah. <laughs> so one other question I have for you, and you may have kind of answered this already. Do you have, um, with, with the research that you've been doing into Vera, and even before we started recording, we were talking about, you know, doing more research into her very mysterious life and <laughs> unfortunately her untimely death. Um, do you have an end game there? Like, do you think uh, this is something you want to write a book about? I mean, I don't want to tie you down to something you should do, but I was just curious what, what uh, you were thinking. Yeah. I mean, the hope and the goal is to continue with her story um, in whatever avenue I can. Like I said, right now, I've been hitting a lot of, <laughs> a lot of walls in my research right, because right it's so hard to find anything on her um, and reaching the proper channels. So I think I have a few leads. So I'm hoping that they lead somewhere, but yeah. I mean, her husband after her death up and moved away from their property, bulldozed their land. And then all of a sudden there were no more, uh, you know, not articles, but there, there was no more paperwork or um, an account of Jack West Quite after 1947. Yeah. So it's really bizarre. So there's a part of me that's like, should I go down this rabbit hole? Will the mob put a hit out on me if I go down this <laughs> rabbit hole? <laughs> but, but it is something that I genuinely want to know about because her life yeah. is so fascinating to me. So I want to try to expand as much as I can and hopefully I mean, that'll lead somewhere. <laughs> yeah, I'm actively rooting for you because <laughs> I want to know. It, it's been quite frustrating this week when I've tried to do my own like amateur research and I'm yeah. thinking, well, somebody's got to know something. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. So I don't know, we'll see. I'm, I'm trying to go through every source that I can. <laughs> considering the time period, you could end up with uh, the next two the next big true crime podcast uh, that you can actually oh incorporate God. a sewing fun into. So go down that road. It's all the monsters that you kiss off will probably be on oxygen at that point. You know right. what? That's a really good point. <laughs> you know, the yeah. ones you would piss off, I think they're... Um, you're they, the they're no longer worries. welcome. <laughs> yeah, probably, probably. Yeah, I'll just, I'll have to get... Martin Short and Steve Martin, and we'll do an Only Murders of Vera West podcast. Oh, that's, that's so fun. <laughs> that's so fun. I think she would love that too. Do you have any um, top uh, examples of like, because I was, like I said before, I was thinking of my own examples of like fashion and horror that I've loved. Do you have any big ones that you haven't already mentioned? Like movies that I love. Yeah. And that specifically, particularly the costumes. And I'm happy to like even Google who the costume designer is while we're yeah. talking. Give them shout um, outs. I'm trying to think. Let me, I'm looking at my, my wall of DVDs. Um, I mean. It's I, important the, to keep physical media. Oh, a hundred percent. I mean. Sometimes things aren't streaming. 
Oh yeah. I mean, there's no arguing with the classics. Um, I really love Fresh, that, the new movie that just came out. Um, yes. That, I, the way I, again, I, I just wrote a blog post about her too. So I, I'm mad that her name is eluding her right now. Um, uh, but, Mimi Cave, the director? Yeah, well, that was the, yeah, that was the director. Yeah. Um, but the costume designer, it was two women um, who liked my blog post when I posted it on I, Instagram. I think I have the names for you. Christina oh, yes. Flannery and yes. Athena Thini. I yes. keep saying that last name wrong, unfortunately, but yes, two women. That's amazing. Yes. I loved this movie. Yes. So I just, I loved the subtlety of the imagery that they used where like that, that pink dress at the end, I really spoke about that in my, yes. my article about that because it looked like it was silky. It was soft. It looked like pink meat and it looked like flesh and she was in this dress, but she had these dirty converse on at the end, you know, and they're eating dinner together and she's eating you know, I don't want to spoil anything because oh, don't worry so about new. it. <laughs> but I mean, yeah, that one was really done well. Um, I really love Bingo Hell. Um, I talk about this a lot, and we interviewed Yulin on the podcast, and she was fantastic. I just the texture. I'm a texture person, so like seeing all those textures together with the goop and the blood, and um, but every character was so individually voiced as to who they were it was so well done Yulin is just so good I mean she does the walking dead so she knows what she's doing <laughs> Yulin knows what she's doing um yeah I mean I love Rosemary's Baby that one's another fun one too mm-hmm. um because again you have the sleepwear you have this mod movement and the latter half of the 20th century is super fascinating to me because we started getting away from like style types and everything became very individualized by the late 60s especially postcode where you know you had so many different types of people getting dressed in ways that fit them it wasn't just like day dress number one two and three anymore it was like you have beatniks you have punks you have goths you have hippies you had the mod kids and so all of these underground movements became popularized so you really see that influenced throughout Rosemary's Baby and throughout all of those horror movies of the 70s into the 80s so yeah I love love watching the trajectory of fashion that way well I'm so excited to read your <laughs> blog and listen to your podcast and learn everything um oh, especially <laughs> the fact that you just called out like because the way when I was watching Fresh and the um and her dress at the end I didn't put together the pink like meat or like Mm. flesh part but what I what I was thinking of uh was how innocent that dress is yeah um but I love the other layer of um (laughs) no pun intended layers of meat uh but um but I didn't think about that and it just that's a really really great yeah And I did speak about the innocence of it too, because she has that great bow on the front that's super immature looking. But then when you think about, you know, agriculture, you know, industrialized agriculture, we kill these animals when they're very young. So not only is she being a piece of flesh, but like, she's kind of, I mean, I I also read really deeply into these things too, but it kind of connected Mm -hmm. the dots to me that like, these animals don't live for very long either. And, you know, he's, killing these women who are younger because younger meat is better meat so exactly yeah (laughs) no that's such a great that's such a great point I wouldn't have thought of that before if you didn't say it so (laughs) love it it there's nothing wrong with not having uh the same mentality as a fictional cannibal uh so never feel bad about that (laughs) yeah Jolene kind of did I didn't that's all I'm gonna say But yeah, as we bring this in for a landing, are there any uh, things that you're working on that you're permitted to talk about in a public forum that uh, Chelsea, myself, and our listeners can look forward to? Yeah, well, I mean, uh, 429, so April 29th is the next season of The Last Drive-In, so definitely tune in on Shudder at 9 Eastern, um, and this season's going to be shenanigan filled, so I cannot wait. Um, And we're starting with our 100th movie, so that's going to be incredible too that yeah it's our it's joe bob's 40th anniversary and it's our hundredth film that we've shown on the show um which is a pretty big deal so he's i i, I still can't believe that he's been doing it this long <laughs> i'm looking forward to it right before the pandemic started i got to see 
uh, him do his How Ooh. Rednecks Saved Hollywood show at the Cinema Arts Center. I did too. Day. I was there. Yeah, you are. See, we were in the <laughs> same room and didn't know it. <laughs> and and that was a wonderful time. So of course, I'll yeah. To that. I think uh, you posted something and you mentioned you did one an article online. Will there be more articles for Fangoria in the future? Oh yeah, I um, Phil and I have a very good relationship. Same with Angel. Oh, I've never met Angel in person. She's the online editor, um, but Phil and I have a very good like working relationship. So anything that I kind of throw at them, they I mean you know they yay or nay things. I'm not you know, but um, they I mean Phil's been super receptive to all of my ideas. So I I really appreciate having his voice and his um, vibrato in my corner in that way. So yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, when I have an idea, I just send it over and see if it fits. And yeah, so definitely some more online stuff. Um, hopefully some more print stuff. And um, and then at the end of the calendar year, um, everybody will finally get to see Scare Package 2, which is Erin oh, yeah. Kuntz and the Paper Street Gang. You're, you're involved in Scare Package too? Yeah, yeah. I did the wraparound for that. Nice, because I just heard that was announced. Uh, and as a former video store clerk, I just love that idea. It's a very fun anthology. Um, I don't directly relate to Rad Chad, but I would have worked in his store. Yeah. Yeah, that, it, it's going to be such a fun one. And I mean, the cast was just announced. So, I mean, it was incredible working with all of all of them. And yeah, it was a good time. So I'm very excited for everybody to see it. And when's that coming out again? Um, so I don't have an exact date for that yet. I'm just, I think, end of the calendar year. So I think they're still working out specific dates. That gives me something to look forward to at a time of the year where I don't have a lot to look forward to. Yeah. <laughs> so where can people find you if they want to find you? Like yeah, so you can follow me. Speaking? Of course. Yeah. You can follow me on Instagram at Jolene Marie underscore designs. Um, you follow me on Twitter at Joe Marie designs. That's just J O. And then um, through there is my, my blog hang by a thread and my podcast to die for that Emma and I co-host. Cool deal. Chelsea, where can the people find you if they want to find you? They can find me on Twitter and on Instagram, just looking up Chelsea Bennington and I am right there. Cool. You can check out Spooky Doings on Instagram, Spooky Doings Improv on Facebook. We're working on getting uh, a new spot so that we can make up funny things and kill each other on stage. I'm on Twitter at Rick Guzman 718 Jolene, thank you so much for being a part of the show. It was a joy talking to you. And come back anytime. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. I have just enjoyed speaking with you guys so much. Oh, <laughs> no, thank you. But, no, <laughs> we loved it. And I can't wait to can't wait to learn more about Vera and to also follow you. That sounded weird, but that's no, that's it. fine. <laughs> I love it. That's, we've made new friends today, and that's a beautiful thing. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And to all our listeners, stay good, stay healthy, stay spooky. Till next time.